Hi friends, welcome to a special bonus edition of the Bible Project podcast. As you know, we finished off season two of the book of Genesis, and rather than launch off straight into season three midweek, for the next couple of days I'll be putting a few bonus episodes on. Today is taken from a sermon I preached, I think it was towards the end of 2017, at St Anne's Baptist Church in Lancashire, England. It was designed to help people come to terms with and deal with the idea of rejection. Rejection they have may experienced in their life as an individual or rejection because of their belief in Christ. I hope you find it helpful. The scriptures I shall be unpacking during the message are Mark chapter 6 verse 1 to 13. I do hope God blesses you by the preaching of his word. Have any of you ever heard of the story of the Ugly Duckling? Hans Christian Andersen. All nod if you've heard of it. Yeah. The basics of the story is about this duckling that suffers months and months of rejection and hardship and teasing. And he goes off by himself. But I'm going to read to you the conclusion of the original story. And it was written in 1844 by Hans Christian Andersen. But this is the actual original text. Then he felt quite ashamed and hid his head under his wing, for he did not know what to do. He had been persecuted and despised for his ugliness, and now he heard them say that he was the most beautiful of all the birds. Even the elder tree bent down its boughs into the water before him, and the sun shone warm and bright. Then he rustled his feathers, curved his neck, and cried joyfully from the depths of his heart, I never dreamed of such happiness, this while I wasn't an ugly duckling, for in fact I was still and always a beautiful swan. So we'll leave that sitting for a moment and we'll see if it comes back again. The overt fact I believe we as Christian believers need to grasp hold of in this day and age is the truth that in the UK the vast majority of people reject the message of Christianity and in fact they reject the person of Christ himself. But we don't need to be worried by this and we don't need to be fazed by this because throughout its 2,000 year history, including the years where Jesus himself walked on this earth, the vast majority of people in the fullness of time, they rejected his message. The community of God's people, that's what we are, the church, this community of God's people, has survived for 2,000 years. And through it's, it's survived, and to a degree it's flourished, but certainly people have been blessed through every type of culture and every type of civilization, but it's nearly always been marginal to the big cultural backdrop in which it's existed. And what I'd like to do today is to just consider for a moment about how we should handle rejection. Now, what I primarily have in mind is how we should handle the rejection of the truth about to the message of Jesus Christ. But please note some of the things I also say will apply to any personal rejection that you might experience. It may help you with those things. Now the passage that was read for us, it very obviously fell into two parts. I don't know if you noticed that. First of all, it tells us and shows us how Jesus was rejected when he returned to his hometown. And then the second part shows us him sending out the apostles two by two. 
But these two passages are both linked by the theme of rejection. So we'll begin with the first part of the passage, which deals very straightforwardly with the issue of Jesus being rejected. So just to revisit the text, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed, saying, where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are the remarkable miracles that he is performing? So this is the second visit of Jesus to his hometown of, of Nazareth. And the Bible tells us this visit occurs approximately one year after the first. And we see on this occasion he's seen to enter the local synagogue. Now Mark's account doesn't tell us anything about what he said or what he taught on that occasion. But interestingly, Luke's account of that same event does. And I'm going to read you from Luke's account because it tells us exactly what Jesus said and exactly what he did on that day. I have it in front of me and I'll read it, but if you want to follow along, it's Luke 4, 16 to 21. It's too big to go on the overhead. So this is what Jesus actually said and what he actually did when he went into the synagogue. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, and as was his custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened upon him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you get that? You know, it's a bit of a wow moment, that. He stands up in the synagogue, unrolls a scroll of scripture, reads this out, and then he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled right in front of you. So let's just have a look at how the people react to that. And we're going back to Mark's account. It tells us that many who heard him, they're amazed. Where did the man get these things from, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? And what are these remarkable miracles he is performing? So the people question in wonder and awe when Jesus, where Jesus claims to come from and how he is able to say the amazing things he says and do the remarkable things he does. But then people go on to say this. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. In other words, the people are saying, we know this guy. He grew up around here. He's just the carpenter. Look, they say, that's the guy who made a plow for me a couple of years ago. There's his family over there, and they name his mother and his brothers and sisters. And they say, where, where has he got this wisdom from? Now, did you know that after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had other children? A lot of Christians don't know that. He had other children, both boys and girls, and they're named for us here. And by the way, the person James mentioned in that list of names 
He's the same James who wrote the book of James we've studied here for months. And he went on to head up the Jerusalem church after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But at this point, at this moment in time, the picture being painted is of a small, insular, inward-looking community and Jesus returning to them. A former carpenter from a modest family, he doesn't seem like a likely candidate for the prophet mentioned in Isaiah, never mind the Messiah mentioned in Isaiah. Because the Messiah they're waiting for, the one that the people are waiting for, was expected to come in with some drama and big thing, big excitement, and to purge the nation of all foreigners, drive them out, and in fact liberate Israel from under the oppression of Rome and establish a new kingdom on earth. That's the kind of Messiah those people were hoping for, but it's not what they got. But they're very conflicted by this and confused by what's going on because on one hand they recognize that there's a heavenly wisdom going on here. Where is this wisdom he's speaking to coming from? But on the other hand, they think, well, it's, it's that guy from that family who used to be the local carpenter. Well, there's an old saying, isn't there? Don't judge a book by its cover. Now, I heard a story. Seamus Heaney, the well-known Irish poet, his father was a peat farmer, very simple guy, who lived and made his living by literally digging the earth from around the, the farm and the land that he owned. And he made a little extra on the side by selling the odd cow now and again. Seamus Heaney, his son, from that background, went on to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. But early on in his career, when he had his first book published, the publishers gave him a new special author's edition, which was their pattern to give every new author a special leather-bound edition of the first book that they published. The story is, he went to his father, and he presented that book to his father. And his father said, wow, very nice. Where did you learn to bind books? Maybe he should have looked inside and seen his son's name on the page. It's the same thing going on here. These people are looking at Jesus, they're looking at the outside, but they're not really paying care and attention to what's coming from the inside. And I would suggest to you that people are still doing that today, all the time when they're confronted with the living Lord Jesus. Maybe it's useful for us to take a quick look at how they responded so we might learn something from it. This is from the New Living Translation, which I hope makes this, can be a little bit difficult verse to understand. It puts it in a, in a clearer context. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown. Now, once Paul and I, we used to drag the kids around to all these places they didn't want to go when they were young. Anybody been guilty of that? Museums, art galleries, National Trust, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> there's a few suffered that. Interestingly, David, now he's 22, started going to those places on his own. One time we arrived at one in our motorhome, and we parked outside, and he refused to get out and went up into the bed and said, I'm sick of these places. So he, he went up and, and parked himself in the bed, you know, above the cab, and drew the curtains, and we had an hour or two around there. Interesting, he now goes to those places all the time with his girlfriend. <laughs> but once we visited the Birmingham Art Gallery to see the pre-Raphaelite pictures, which it's famous for, and as we were there, I heard a young boy say, these pictures are rubbish. <laughs> I remember thinking, mm, you know, son, it's not really the pictures that are on trial here. 
It's the visitors and their reaction to them. I think they've stood the test of time. It's not Jesus who's ever on trial, friends, but it's people's reaction to him and it's people's reaction to what he's taught that is really tested. The text continues. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went round teaching from village to village. So what does that mean? We know Jesus. He's the son of God. He has the power and he can do anything he wants. We believe that. But in this situation, people do not recognize who he was. They do not have faith. And therefore, they have no appetite for him to do any of the amazing works he could have done amongst them. And even if he had done them, even if he had done them without them asking, which he had the power to do, they wouldn't have recognized them as a gift of God. You know, people, God can't answer your prayers if you don't ask him. He can't answer your prayers if you don't ask him in the first place. And when he does answer unasked prayers, which he does all the time, he's often not credited. Someone we know, not a believer, whose husband went in for not serious, but not, not, not quite routine surgery, but not serious, and there was catastrophic uh, complications on the, on the operating table. And he nearly died, and he was in intensive care for months, and his recovery probably took two years. And during that time, she visited churches. She visited churches in this town, and people prayed for her and prayed for him. And Facebook was full of messages of people praying for her. And, well, many years later, he's there running Park Run on a Saturday morning, running, you know, doing a 5K. And I spoke to her a few weeks ago and said, what do you think went on in all this? And her response was, well, when you're desperate, you'll try anything. Sometimes if people don't have the faith, God will move. I don't know whether God healed that person or not, but if he did, he wasn't credited with it. I don't know whether God healed them or he, what went on in this situation in that time, but I do know that there was never an appetite to acknowledge what God had done. Simply put, Jesus is often rejected and his work is often uncredited and sometimes not even wanted. William Barclay said this, if people come together to hate, they will hate. If people who refuse to understand come together, then they will misunderstand. If people come together to see no other point of view than their own, then they will see no other point of view but their own. But if people come together loving Christ and seeking to love each other, then even people who are the most widely divided in society can come together in Christ. The awesome truth in this, which we have to approach with reverence and fear, is as Christian believers, we are given the tremendous responsibility that we can either encourage or hinder the work of Jesus in the lives of people. All of us can either open the door for him wide or we can slam it in his face. And that's what the people are doing in Jesus' hometown. They are spiritually slamming the door in Jesus' face. 
So even Jesus himself faced rejection. So the second part of the passage tells us that he left Nazareth, he leaves the main town, and he goes around teaching in the smaller towns. Then it tells us he called 12 to him, and he began to send them out two by two, giving them authority over impure spirits. The matter of fact, this word, send, says to send them out, that's the word from where, it's a Greek word from where we get our term apostle. The word apostle simply means someone who is sent, someone who is sent on an official mission, in fact. Now, this is not just a postman, not sent out like a postman is sent out. This word means someone who's sent out with authority to deliver a message personally. Another word is sometimes used and is better used and meets our modern understanding of it is an ambassador. We're ambassadors for Christ. And it's here we see him send out his 12 disciples, which is why it's only from this point forward we see them sometimes referred to in the text as the 12 apostles. He then tells us, this is his instructions, take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, not even an extra shirt, and whenever you enter house, stay there until you leave that town. They're not allowed to take anything, no food, no extra clothes. All they are to take are their sandals and a staff. And you thought Ryanair's baggage policy was strict. (laughs) Well, there's definitely no extra baggage alliance on this journey. But what this tells us is that we should travel light. But he also says, you go to these villages and depend upon them for your support. Or you go to community and depend upon that community for your support. They will support you if they value what you're doing and the message they bring. And if they don't value that message, then you should move on. When Matthew tells a story, he adds the additional important observation to the community that the worker is worthy of his wage. In all this, Jesus is teaching the big thing is you need to depend on the Lord. And the Lord works through people to build his church, the church to supply the needs of the worker. Then it says this. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So it's quite incredible that right from the start, Jesus says, be aware some people are not going to receive this message. They're not going to hear what you say to them. They may not even welcome you. And the really important thing is they're not actually going to listen. They're not going to hear. And it tells us on those occasions, it says this, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now what I find interesting about this is at that time, if the Jewish people traveled outside the region of Palestine, when they crossed the border into what they would call Gentile territory, they believed that they were unclean, that they were defiled. But when they crossed back over the border, they would symbolically stand at the border and shake the dust from their clothes as a way of signifying they're removing all the unworldly influences. So that was the custom of the day, the backdrop to which this teaching has been taught into. And what I believe this tells us, that when the message is consistently offered, faithfully offered, and it's continually rejected, We need to reach a point where we must symbolically, in a sense, 
dust our feet as a testimony to those who have rejected it and move on. It doesn't mean someone else might not come along and give the same message and they respond to it, but we are free to move on, and that's what Jesus tells the disciples to do. He tells them to do that, and then they go out and they preach that the people should repent. So they go out and preach repentance, it says. A word that simply means they tell people to change their mind. They tell people, you need to repent, you need to change your mind about who Jesus is. And here's the really important one. You need to change your mind about what sin is. Sin is not what most people think. And by doing so, by changing your mind about Jesus and what sin is, then that has the power to help you live a new and a transformed life by the power of God. So what's, what's the point of all this? The first part of the passage tells us Jesus was rejected. The second part of the passage tells us Jesus sends his disciples out and they will also be rejected. But it's saying they're going to be rejected precisely because they're preaching the message of Jesus. Jesus speaking elsewhere said this in John 15:20. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So let me just finish by making a couple of practical suggestions about facing up to the consequences of being a Christian, of being an ambassador of Christ. Firstly, if you're doing those things, if you're living that way, you are going to face rejection. As a matter of fact, if you haven't experienced rejection from some, from some since becoming a Christian, there's only one of two possible things. It means you've been a Christian so long you no longer have any non-Christian friends. Or it means you're not really telling people about what Jesus has done in your life. But if you do these things, if you talk about Jesus, then you experience rejection. But that's okay. And this passage is saying, that's okay. Keep it in perspective. We don't have to duck and cover. We don't have to develop a siege mentality. Because what we're experiencing today, friends, is nothing compared to what people have experienced in the church down through the centuries or are experiencing today, right now, in other parts of the world. Keep it in perspective. No one in Lytham St. Anne's in 2018 is asking you to renounce your faith at the point of a sword. You know, you're well aware, we're planning to celebrate some baptisms here very soon on the 10th of June, in fact. Very recently heard of a young missionary student who went to Malaysia for a summer to serve in a Christian church out there. His first Sunday he went into that church was a baptismal service, and one of the young people attending that church, a young girl of 17 years old, was among the group of people being baptized. During the service, he noticed behind the baptismal fault, leaned against the wall, was a small worn suitcase. He asked the pastor what the suitcase was doing there. The pastor said, that young girl who's being baptized this morning, his father said to her, if you go ahead and be baptized, then she should leave and never come home. She had brought her suitcase to the baptismal service. There are people going to be baptized amongst us who God is calling to give things up. It's really hard for people to do that. We need to support. That young girl brought her luggage case, all her worldly possessions, to the baptism. 
I submit to you, most of us in this society don't really even know what rejection is. We all need to get real. People around the world are dying for their faith in Christ. Please come and speak to me individually if that's something you feel God is putting on your heart. But the second thing that happens, if rejection happens in any way in your life, just for being a Christian, we are told we can rejoice. We should keep it in perspective, but we can also rejoice. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm not kidding. If you experience rejection, you should rejoice. That's exactly what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus exactly, explicitly says. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kind of evil against you, falsely. So it can be false as well, friends, for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. Another way to look at this is just to say, I'm going to rejoice and I'm not going to take it personally. Because it's not really against you. It feels that way. It's against him. It's against Jesus. If you weren't an ambassador for Christ, if you weren't representing him, they wouldn't be bothered about you. So don't take it personally. Keep it in perspective and rejoice. And let me make a final suggestion. It's simply this. Jesus himself said, Remember the word that I said to me, a servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So if it does happen, you should rejoice because you should be encouraged because it means that you're being authentic. It means you're being authentic to the gospel and you're being adapted, you're being changed, you're being refined to be more like Christ. And that's the whole purpose of the Christian life. Paul said these things will happen, and they happen for a reason. And that reason is this, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. When we are rejected, friends, we get a glimpse of what it's like, a little bit like to be like Christ, because we are rejected for Christ's sake, so don't take it personally. And definitely don't listen to those who are rejecting you and don't let them drag you down. Simply remember this. You are a child of God, a follower of Christ, and a possessor of the Holy Spirit who will teach you, who will disciple you, who will bring you on into the mind of Christ. When you're in Christ, you're living in Christ, in the light of that, it doesn't really matter what people say about you. Just remember who you are in Christ and what he has promised you. When Hans Christian Andersen was asked by a journalist if he ever planned to write his biography because he had an amazing life, he replied, I've already written it. It was called The Ugly Duckling. In reviewing Hans Christian Andersen's biographer, Jens Andersen, she was interviewed by British journalist Anne Chisholm, and this is what she wrote. Andersen himself was a tall, ugly boy with a big nose and big feet. And when he grew up, he hid his beautiful singing voice and his passion for the theatre because he was cruelly teased and mocked by other children. The story of the ugly duckling is the child of a swan whose egg accidentally rolls into a duck's nest. Speculation now suggests that Andersen was in fact the illegitimate son of Prince Christian Frederick 
later King Christian VIII of Denmark, and he found this out some short time before he wrote The Ugly Duckling, and that being a swan in the story was a metaphor not just for his own life, but for the life of Christ in him and his Christian faith. And it was inspired not only by his secret talent, but also by the secret loyal lineage he held both in Christ and in the world. The story is a metaphor for his secret loyal lineage, the lineage that he held both in Christ and in the world. The last line of the fairy tale says this, it does not matter if you are born and destined to live in a duckyard as long as you've been hatched from a swan's egg. Let me make a suggestion, friends. When you're rejected, don't live as an ugly duckling. Remember, you've been born again into the kingdom of God. You've been born again and adopted into a royal lineage of the Son of God, the Son of the King of the universe. Let's pray.